Hello, welcome back to Catalyzing Coherence. Today we are here with Ori Braffman. Thanks for coming on the show, Ori. Thanks for having me. Ori is the co-author of The Starfish and the Spider and just released a new book by the name of Radical Inclusion. Uh, Ori, uh, we really, I really wanted to have you on the show here because of the fact that you know we are in Starfish Mission and <laughs> the namesake of this entire space is, is derivative of of your book, of your work. Which is so cool. Um, yeah, and so basically, we're, we're, you know, I'm honored to have you here. And I'd really like to, I guess, first maybe start with unpacking um, what it was that led you to this insight in terms of decentralized or centralized organisms and, and what it's kind of like to see that take root in the world and, and see communities build up around that idea, like the one that we're sitting in right now. Um, so the origins go all the way back to uh, 2001. I was on a plane on September 10th um, from Boston to uh, San Francisco. I woke up the next day realizing that the world was just a different place and wanted to do something to make a difference. And we co-founded a nonprofit that engaged CEOs on peace and economic development issues. Um, have six, six uh, Israelis and six Palestinians, or six Americans and six Saudis. And um, we, we got funding, and people asked us two questions. Uh, they were good questions, but they were the wrong questions to ask. Uh, the first question was, who's in charge? <laughs> and we're like, I wasn't in charge. I was 26. Um, and the second one was, what's, um, um, what's the strategy of the, net, of, of the organization? And the answer was, the strategy is really to just keep on growing the network. And some of the circles focused on very specific action, and not much happened. And the circles that focused on symbolic action were actually the ones that were uh, the most successful. The biggest one was probably the Indian-Pakistan group. Hmm. Uh, the Pakistanis uh, invited the Indians to come visit them after a few meetings. Uh, there was no flights between the two countries. And uh, the Indians chartered a 737. And when they landed, the president of Pakistan was there. And he said, with this flight, I hereby open up the borders. And there's now flights between India and uh, uh, Pakistan. And uh, people were like, how did you open up the borders? <laughs> and we're like, um, we didn't open up the borders. It was a power of the network. And in trying to understand what happened, uh, we turned to biology. Uh, the metaphor is you cut off the head of a, of a spider, it dies. You cut off the arm of a starfish, it grows on back because there is no central head. And you think about that as a metaphor for business and society from Alcoholics Anonymous to Wikipedia, um, these very distributed uh, networks. Um, and what's interesting about them is that the harder that you fight them, actually the stronger they become. The book came out in 06 and it ended up in um, a lot of very different places. Uh, yeah. It was mandatory reading at Greenpeace. Uh, it uh, was read uh, in the US military. Um, uh, several political movements, including Occupy and um, the Tea Party, <laughs> uh, were <laughs> influenced by it, and uh, as well as uh, blockchain and the uh, early writings about Bitcoin. Uh, you think about uh, blockchain is really an, a empowering a starfish uh, uh, community and, and network. And uh, a few weeks ago, I heard about Starfish Network, and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, "What are you guys doing? This is so awesome!" Yeah. And this is fantastic seeing. I think it's the uh, same Starfish icon as well that we're yeah, using. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. cool. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's hard to describe just how cool that is. It's that um, something that you write about 
all of a sudden you see it like in the real world and you're yeah. like, oh, this is really amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and we're kind of, I guess, perhaps in in one of the tentacles, or or one of the one of the arms, one of the arms, arms. one of the arms. Tentacle, arms yeah. sounds so much friendlier, yeah, right? That's <laughs> definitely true. So, although I guess tentacle is not. That's like squid-like or octopus-like. That's not yeah. really. A, that's not really a starfish. It's an arm. Right. It's an arm. Um, I guess one one thing that I've wondered about is uh, why contrast with a spider specifically, given that you know there might be many animals out there whose head you could chop off and and it would become rather uh, incapable <laughs> of much. Right, right, right. right? But what, what is it specifically about the spider in contrast to the starfish that, uh, that makes it such a, such a good example? It, it, it was a, um, a marine biologist who uh, helped us with, with the metaphor. Um, and I like the spider because they, they kind of, in a weird way, look the same, right? It's, it's kind of like mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of legs or uh, yeah. uh, arms coming out yeah. of like at, like, at like, like surface level appearance, yeah, there exactly. seems to be a center exactly. and there seems to be exactly. kind of a radiation. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, uh, the publishers wanted to put a picture of a spider on, on, on the, uh, <laughs> <Just> like <laughs> on trigger, the cover. Trigger yeah. And it triggered a lot there. of people. And we're like, <laughs> no, <laughs> it came this close to have like a spider, like dangling down. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's like one book, those book sales immediately reduced by like 30% because half the people can't even pick it up. Right. <laughs> you wonder what would happen, right? <laughs> uh, those little choices. Yeah. 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 It's like you put it in the window of a bookstore and, and like all of the bookstores, patrons just don't come anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. So I like spiders. I think spiders get a better rep, but I, I do agree that, um, well, I mean, they are, they are these interesting examples of, uh, of a creature that, um, I mean, I guess everything about it is to some extent centralized. It's like, even like, think of it, like it sits at the center of its web. Right. And like when something, when something, uh, well, not every spider acts this way, but archetypally when something interacts with its web, it'll, it'll go and kind of like grab it, wrap it up and like bring it back. Right, and like right, right, right. The center. And so it really is this, um, almost like a, like a biological, like black hole, like evolution. Or like, centralization. It's yeah, kind of centralized. Everything it, it's gets very, pulled right. into the middle. Right. Whereas, whereas the starfish is the opposite of that in terms of, you know, things get pushed to the edges. Each organ has its own, or each arm has its own. Well, not every starfish is like this, but some starfish, you know, each arm has their own um, uh, fully capable, you know, encapsulated biological units, stomach, um, you know, neurological system. And so if it splits up or if it's, if it's divided, it can, you know, drift wherever it may need to go and then, you know, reinstantiate it, its own full self once more. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, it's still a mystery uh, exactly how some starfish move yeah. because the arms almost move uh, independently yeah. and they, they have to coordinate amongst each other about where to move. So it's, it's, yeah. It's fascinating how we still, like something so, like, you know, on the surface level, presumably simple. Right. And so many biologists are probably looking at this and yet we still haven't kind of cracked that code. Right. Yeah. Um, and what I like about the starfish is that it looks like, it looks static, mm-hmm. right? But there's so much going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, it looks like a primitive. Yeah. Um, uh, Have you ever seen those um, like um, uh, time lapse videos of tide pools? Yeah. 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 Like you really like when you just look at a tide pool uh, on the coast of California. They're they're numerous, uh, especially like, I guess, like Monterey, Monterey and those yeah. types of areas. Uh, and you go to a tide pool and you look at it, and it looks like this this artistic still almost in a way. And there there there's definitely movement in there, but it doesn't look as dynamic as you might um, later realize if you actually watched. A time lapse of it, and there's a lot going on in there. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and I like that um, from the outside. And, and it used to be, uh, I think people are changing the perception. People were like, 
wait a second, you're talking about organizations that don't have top-down leadership, but why do we care? Yeah. And then you see enough, enough examples where these kind of uh, just very uh, different organizational uh, structures create such change. Mm-hmm. And that we're starting to see it really in every industry, in every um, uh, environment, and that from the outside they look like, uh, wait a second, this isn't organized, but really there's a lot more going on than uh, meets the eye. Mm-hmm. One question I've, I've asked myself when thinking about decentralized organizations, and especially within this new decentralized economic movement, is uh, well, maybe stepping back to okay. give it a little bit more of a frame. Yeah. Um, I was reading a book, and it was a it was a book by a philosopher, Manuel Delanda. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's, a, I guess, a speculative realist is what they call it. Uh, they He wrote this book called 1,000 Years of Nonlinear History. 1,000 Years of Nonlinear? Wow. Yeah, okay. and so he actually goes, he recapitulates the past 1,000 years through three different lenses. You know, one is like uh, this geological lens. Mm-hmm. Another is genes and flesh. And another is effectively information flows and memes. Huh. And... In the, it's an interesting book that you might like, but um, he does talk about this tension between the trade-offs that come along with centralized hierarchy versus um, decentralized like mesh networks, as he calls it, mm-hmm. or, or decentralized organisms, organizations where um, hierarchies are good at our short-term agency or like kind of like pointing, right. pointing and shooting. Right. Um, yet, uh, yet they are subject to they're, they're less quite less adaptive over the long term, or they might not be as well suited to highly volatile circumstances where that pointing and shooting in one direction might take you off a cliff, right? right, right. Um, whereas decentralized organizations are much more robust in these volatile circumstances or ecosystems, um, yet in the short term, it can seem chaotic and, and seem as if they are more subject to drift. It's harder to get everybody to move in the same direction. Do you, is, does that ring true in, in your experience with decentralized organizations? Or have you seen effective coordination from the bottom up um, where, it, where it doesn't actually feel chaotic either? Um, I think that with technology, you're actually able to coordinate more efficiently mm-hmm. and probably more effectively. We saw that in Occupy. We started seeing that in Occupy. I think we're seeing that in blockchain, mm-hmm. where there isn't, there's actually uh, a fair amount of coherence um, yeah. f- from uh, the get-go. And I think it's because the nodes are able to communicate with each other much quicker and much more effectively. Yeah. Um, so if you're living in a community with a bunch of people and you don't have top-down centralization, then yeah, there's the, like the meetings that go on for a long time until you hear, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all, 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 all that kind of stuff. Um, you do need centralization, and then I think um, the way I think about it is that centralization is very good about producing actual physical uh, materials and coordinating that. So mm. if, if you're trying to make a car, yeah, um, uh, there needs to be like a plant. Uh, and yet we see companies that have brought in decentralization like Toyota very effectively in terms of being able to uh, allow employees to constantly improve the process. Yeah. So it's, a, it's really, we can think about it as either Starfish or Spider, but where it gets really interesting is mm-hmm. how Starfish networks exist within very large yeah. spider organizations. Yeah, because that is kind of the nature of a network, right? Where you know you look at a network and in, in bi- biology or, or any network that emerges like the internet, you, you get 
some points of centralization in much more overall distributed networks, right? So it's like these points of centrality emerge largely because, I mean, there are some mathematicians that even put out the the hypothesis that this is a kind of just a universal aspect of flows. So somebody, Adrian Bijan, is mm-hmm. like, a, he's this constructal law where he's talking about like a flow through any network will tend towards these certain power law distributions because the flow um, will will minimize the distance or the number of hops that it has to take across the network. And that ends up creating kind of some, some element of centralization. Right. Um, but that creation of centralization also then pushes the network to certain types of, of fragility, right? So it's like like the too big to fail right. types of fragility exactly. start arising out of that, and you have to go through a whole other cycle of of reevaluating and breaking those up. And it kind of is also like um, uh, a type of uh, like, like breaking down monopolies as well. It's like we see these patterns emerge everywhere. It's like centralization emerges, and then we have to go through a cycle of decentralization. And it's like I don't know if you can escape that. Do you think you can escape that, or is that just a feature of I, I, I think it just keeps on swinging from one to the other. Yeah. And um, if you're too centralized, you're going to be too rigid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to be too fragile. Um, you will concentrate wealth in uh, non-sustainable ways. If you're too um, decentralized, um, you, you're going to be somewhat inefficient and uh someone can come in and uh, centralize as a way to um, kind of create the flow or, or the yeah. information uh, more effectively. And, and then it, I, th- I think we're bound to just be centralized, decentralized, centralized, decentralized. Yeah. Um, I wonder um, what's going to happen with all these currencies, whether now... <laughs> well, 90% of them are dead now. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so. uh, and are, are those going to get consolidated? Is is, is, yeah. is there going to be um, is there going to be a centralizing figure? Is, yeah. um, what are the implications about uh, the dollar has um, uh, has an army behind it? Mm-hmm. What happens when there's a currency that doesn't? Yeah, uh, yeah. And well, it's like a physical army versus uh, math and energy. I exactly, suppose, exactly. What you know, the, the kind of the, the battlefield is stacking up. To look like right, yeah, which is super interesting, um, fascinating. And you, so, so you're seeing, um, who who would have thought, right, ten years ago, or that the world of finance would be the world that would be so heavily all of a sudden disrupted and and decentralized. You think like, well, you're in a bank, you're good, yeah. right? Um, yeah. I mean, especially after 2008, even when you know such. Uh, irresponsible behavior was demonstrated and such economic risk was in- injected into our overall economy and the government came and kind of like saved the day and propped them up, you know, propped these banks up even further. And it's like that should in theory reinforce one's, uh, I guess one perspective is like, oh yeah, well the banks are here to stay and it's unlikely that they're going dis- to get disrupted because the government is also backing it and like all the cards are stacked against disruption in that sector. Right. And still it created this genesis moment of, of Bitcoin, right? And like, right. You know, this genesis, the, the genesis block was effectively this political statement as much as it was a technological innovation. And uh, and that's led to this whole new world that we're in where, where everything is kind of getting flipped on its head in, in the financial realm. Which is so interesting that these networks tend to, um, when you look at a, dis- a decentralized network, um, I've, I found that almost always there is a very uh, core set of values Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in the middle of them, um, whether it's Alcoholics Anonymous, um, unfortunately, Al-Qaeda, 
mm-hmm. uh, Wikipedia, right? There's a core yeah. value that, that that's very easy to um, describe. And I think the same thing with um, uh, some of the cryptocurrencies, right? Yeah. There's, there's a core value. And, and, and that's also maybe a question about which currencies are going to survive and which, I wonder, yeah. about whether there's a core value there or whether it's, it's a... Yeah. I think that is, I think that's, um, that's an essential question given that, I mean, at least I, I've, I've done for the past couple of years, I've been researching kind of the evolution of how humans represent value and, you know, money is, is a sub money as we know it today is a subset of that whole long evolutionary process moving from, you know, uh, Incans tying knots into strings called kipu and like representing different, you know, localized community values or shell trading where it's like you had different types of. Um, shells that map to different behaviors. So there might be certain types of currency for hunting or certain types of currency for trading or certain types, you know, very specialized. But mm. as we aggregated and like became larger and larger uh, in terms of our centralized agricultural societies, the costs of that specialized currency, you know, they were too high. You needed something that was, that was more abstract, that was more fungible, right? So we got these, these um, you know, currencies that were universalized or like kind of like gold right uh, everybody acknowledged that this metal was was valuable and so we we kind of abstracted universe universally and now we have the, the dollar that's like so abstract it's like right. what does the dollar really symbolize like as you were talking about earlier like is it the military power is it um the, the symbol of my my leverage in my personal economic reality is it a symbol of love when i use it to purchase you know flowers for my girlfriend mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like that right. um it's all of these and and none of them it's 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 it, it kind of supersedes all of this stuff and i kind of look at that as like we've we've reduced the way we express value to to kind of one dimension um and and that might be too low resolution for us to actually um map our human values onto our economic behavior and i think people are feeling that these days and maybe this cryptocurrency back to your point is really an emergent competition for you know kind of exploding that one dimension into a whole you know field of competition of competing mission statements and it might come you know it might come back to another like a new balance that's not just one currency maybe it's four or five or six or seven who knows where it'll end but you know, we're, maybe we're in this kind of process. If uh, that makes sense, I don't know. That's th- that makes a lot of sense. I, 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 I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, so the dollar and the dollars that I have in in in, in my wallet, uh, in, to some degree, they represent trust. Exactly. Um, so you trust that the dollar is authentic, and there's pretty good ways of right, the kind of eyeballing it looks like a, a real yeah. dollar or not. Um, there's trust in the U.S. government, mm-hmm. um, regardless of our debt and everything else. Like, yeah. Uh, you, you, uh, Some out of a trust in, in just inertia, right? Yeah, um, and I think that um, cryptocurrencies try to make that trust um, more more lateral and and mm-hmm. and, and more um, uh, a digital trust. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's obvious challenges with you know so much of. of as we're seeing concentration in, in certain countries of and uh, by, by certain individuals, and you're like, um, and I wonder whether there's a way of combining um, the in-person trust and uh, the digital trust. Mm-hmm. What happens when there's, um, and I'm, I don't think this exists yet, but if a group of people, say a group of people here in San Francisco, a few hundred people decide to trust each other and have a, a currency that isn't necessarily wide open yeah 
but a currency that is only within that community and where you have already have trust and, and you're, you're able to actually do commerce and probably do commerce in, in a way that we like to do in San Francisco, um, local agriculture and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you have, you have a doctor and a lawyer and whatever uh, yeah. else in, in, in that network whom you trust and, and, and you can conduct um, uh, interactions with. Yeah. And then if you have another island of also people who trust each other and then in in real person say in boston or in germany or wherever it is then you can kind of hop between um mm-hmm. um between these uh areas of uh trusted networks yeah and you can also also then do commerce with people there yeah so it, it's almost like um i guess micro ubiquity yeah yeah i've been <laughs> right? i've been um in some of the writing I've been doing, I've been kind of like thinking these as uh, like moral meshworks in a way. Yeah, like you have like these these emergent structures or, or groups of people, collectives that share values, and they can encapsulate that into you know a, a tokenization form or something along those lines. Where right. internally within their network, there are um, like efficiencies to you know interacting with people who share those same values. Um, the interesting question there is, and tell me what you think about this, because I'm trying to poke holes in it. So please poke some holes in this idea for me. Um, the idea of so right now we have obviously like polarization is is an issue in our political. Why, why, why do you say that? No. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> what makes you say that? <laughs> like, whenever I yeah, whenever I turn on a TV or, radio or the internet or talk to people in the street, it's like yeah, it's a, yeah. we have this we have this you know. Um, deeply amplified polarity in our, yeah. in our perception of the world right. and you know, the language. Even I was looking at there's a Stanford study that that measured the language, the evolution of language used by different you know the political two political mm-hmm. parties, and that's mm-hmm. also dividing across time. Mm-hmm. So it's like not only are we not only are we or not only do we have different perspectives, we're also beginning to use entirely different languages to talk about the perspectives, which yeah. makes it even less likely that we can come to terms about you know whatever the given topic is, and so. So, and and on that, on top of that structural uh, polarity, you layer the economic incentives of, um, you know, perhaps media actors to create more friction and heat around the polarity for revenue and for profit, right. uh, which which also drives the pattern. So there there's a, there's a, there are a lot of incentives further driving us away from one another. Um, but it would be interesting to me, and this is obviously overly generalized and abstract, but like. A world in which there was something like Democrat coin and Republican coin, right? And not, not I'm not saying that that should be what it is, but just the the, the model here, like, bear with me. Mm-hmm. Um, they have different values, and yet, in the same way that there are positive returns to trade, and that's why trade emerges in you know across nations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there there are certain efficiencies to trade, um, and and that's why we fundamentally trade is because like it's if I specialize in, in one, making one good and you specialize in making another good, I should trade with you as opposed to making it myself. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You know, we all get more, right? Um, it would seem that similar things might hold true within the Democratic and Republican spheres, given mm-hmm. that um, there's also been studies that show that there are different types of personality psychology that thrive within those different right. types of political domains. And therefore, you might expect them to be good at different types of things. And so there might be positive returns to, to interaction there, right? And so you could trade the coins with one another, but there would be some sort of friction associated with it. So it's like, think mm-hmm. about getting a bill at the end of each month where it's like your, 
you know, the distance between you and another and all the people that you interacted with economically has a actual cost to it. Mm. And so like you could see like, oh, this is like your ideological bill for for the end of the month. And and that actually instead of incentivizing uh, polarity would kind of create almost an attraction and not that they should be the same thing or that they should ever come to a unity, but it would actually perhaps mm. um, give people a reason to think about what their ideological polarization is, is costing them. I think that's intriguing. Uh, I think it brings up the question of, is the rift in our country Republican Democrat, or is there something even more basic to the rift? Uh, mm -hmm. And I think what you're hinting at is, I think that the rift might be um, traditional versus modernism. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that a critique of the quote-unquote, well, let's just say a, a critique of modernists um, is that um, we lack community. Um, and that because of that, um, there's very little variance allowed to, uh, on certain hot topic issues uh, to be an ally. You, you, you kind of can't, um, uh, there isn't as much freedom to uh, have different viewpoints. Mm -hmm. is, 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 is a critique of, of modernism. Um, and a critique of traditionalism is that it, it lacks uh, equality and, and lacks progress, right? Uh, and uh, doesn't give rights to um, uh, concentrates rights and, and uh, as opposed to distributed rights. So I wonder if, yeah, a, w a way of thinking about how do you, uh, maybe it would be a modernist cone and a, traditional co a traditionalist cone or... Mm -hmm. uh, well, like that, that could also map to something like, like value of stability versus value of, right. of experimentation or change or things like that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's fascinating to think about like how do we speak about these topics in terms of... Cause this pattern keeps emerging in our conversation here where it's like, it's not about one or the other. It's about the interplay between the two right. and the evolutionary, um, what emerges from that interplay right, right. over time and how we update our understanding of, of where we need to be based on the, the combination of, of how people um, associate with either uh, uh, tradition or, or modernism or postmodernism versus uh, or order versus or stability versus progress or, or however people might identify um, it's really the interplay. Yet the language is always, uh, well, not always, but it tends towards the tribal. It tends towards the identification with one over the other. Right. And the superiority of one over the other. Right. As opposed to the necessity of both, even though it might be uncomfortable, um, to, to figure out how that interaction plays out over time. Right. And how, how do you, I like that, how, how do you quantify um, the interaction? Yeah, precisely. And, Right. And the concern over, hey, what happens when we don't have interaction with one another? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that also relates to how, how do you ensure that there's what I really like about the space is that there's community here. And and so, yeah. so often community is, is right. It oftentimes seems lacking. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, in, in the modern, I mean, the we have kind of like, a, I guess, uh, maybe at least a 50 year history so far of, of kind of like increasingly nuclearizing. Uh, or like isolating the individual within society or like focusing on the individual as the source of you know, targeted marketing or like you know, bringing the individual identity to the fore 
um, in service of, of like selling things to the individual as opposed to, you know, saying, oh, you don't need these products. Maybe you could get the value you're seeking in, in community. Right. I, I, uh, the individual can, can mess up a lot. <laughs> I know as an, I as an individual mess up a lot. I kind of trust community more to, hmm. to, be, um, to make the right decisions. And hmm. how, how do we think about making decisions within a community, uh, through a community lens? Hmm. I think that that probably relates to um, people's personal level of comfort with either delegating to the community or, or having that autonomy probably relates to both their personality um, and, and also personal experience. Like I know to some extent, and I, I've seen, um, well, there's a funny YouTube video about the process of designing a stop sign by committee. Right. And so I think it's this thing right, that like every right. like designer engineer can relate to. Where it's uh-huh. like, by the time you're done with it, you have this like pink and blue stop sign and like there's like <laughs> eight different logos on it. And you know, the actual text trying to get people to stop is in like two point font at the bottom. And it's a paragraph describing all of the terms and conditions. What does it mean to stop? And, yeah, and, and then it's like the, a pause, how long of a stop? Yeah. And then like the video ends by, you know, it shows like all these new stop signs at the intersections. And then you just hear like cars crashing. Right. And then, <laughs> right, and right, then right. cut to black fade to black right. um and so uh, people people do experience both the positives and negatives of of um communal decision making although perhaps the type of community or, or group decision making that most people are familiar with um takes place within spider organizations that don't have good templates for collective action so um burning man is happening as, as, as we're recording this yes uh, uh, yes not there this year. <laughs> Not there um, this year. I think Burning Man is a really, really good example of a very starfish or community mm-hmm. that actually is very effective at getting stuff done. Yeah. Uh, so a few years ago, I mean, building a city in the building desert a city is, is in, the, no in the desert is yeah. no small feat. Yeah. Um, I was um, at uh, the airport there. There's a, there's an airport, and I was like. Wow, really kind of, I, I volunteered and I started talking to people and I was like, um, I was like, wow, this is really well run. And, and I, I talked to this guy and I was like, so what do you do, you know, outside of Burning Man? Yeah. And he's like, I work at JFK. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, you, <laughs> this you, isn't something yeah, that you, you know, um, <laughs> they actually, they actually found like some flight controllers <laughs> yeah, who yeah. volunteering. Yeah. Um, and, um, a, a, I think there's a little bit of a myth of the moment that your community where there's no like top-down structure that um, um, all, everything becomes a committee. But Burning Man kind of offers a different uh, approach, which is or, or, or a different solution, which is like do what you want to do um, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, and mm-hmm. um, people will either support you or get out of the way, so that it actually um, allows for a lot of individual creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, there's that tension uh, between between that just pure freedom and and the. I mean, I guess the the traditional way of expressing this is like you're free to swing your arms around until you start kind of like hitting people. Right, in the right, face, right, right. And but it, but what you're talking about goes beyond that because you're not just talking about um, just like swinging your arms around mindlessly. It's really about like what are you building and like what are you bringing to the table create, creatively and how is that. Um, enmeshing with uh, enriching or hurting the community around you, right? Like, how does it how does it actually integrate? 
um, and maybe maybe that's an interesting way of looking at uh, these types of you know the way of providing individual autonomy for creativity that also can emerge into something collectively valuable. Exactly. So um, my my, uh, my older brother uh, gives me grief over going to Birdman and is like, why are you paying all this money and you're like in the middle of the desert and it's like, he yeah. doesn't get it. And you're paying all that money to not shower for a week. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I forgot where to shower, but yeah. <laughs> showering is important. Uh, I think that, so, so I, I do speak in a, a, a big companies and, and uh, department of defense and I'm always like Burning Man. People are like, what are you going to talk about Burning Man? You know? <laughs> uh, and I think that we need to, have you been? Yeah. Um, I've been one time. Yeah, I plan on going back, but it's, I don't think it's something that I can do every year. Although, uh-huh. you know, I have I have respect for everybody who goes, there, <laughs> right? And I'm glad people do that. But for me, it's like it, it's so it's such a um, it's such like a almost like a nuclear or psychological explosion. Yeah, there's so much stimulation, and I'm I'm fairly sensitive to that. And uh-huh. so when I went, you know, I felt like it literally kind of like took me and took my mind and, and recalibrated things and then I was on a different track right? <laughs> and it's like I need I need a couple years a couple years to like changing yeah. tracks right so, <laughs> so I actually have the same um view of it and uh, I I think of it as a um almost like a pilgrimage honestly mm-hmm. uh, and I think we need to view Burning Man through a spiritual lens mm-hmm. and that Burning Man is a very coherent um very spiritual experience for a lot of people who then come back to Silicon Valley and operate by a certain uh, yeah. set of norms that aren't explicit mm-hmm. uh, to the outside uh, viewer. Yeah, but that actually uh, people like I think I think it's as close as we have to a church <laughs> here in San Francisco. Yeah, there's there's a there's definitely that's one thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about after going my first time is you know there's so much there's so much energy and so much. Uh, I had so many ideas about like, things that I had seen and ways that I had seen people interacting and ways that I had seen people creating, co-creating um, or sharing information or, you know, just helping one another out and, and the amount of synchronicity there and, you know, wondering how can this be brought back into the, I guess, as it's called the default world. Right, right, right. right. And I guess it, it, my questions along those lines took me in two directions. One was, you know, seeing Burning Man appreciating what we have in the default world through the lens of its capacity to allow for the creation of something like Burning Man on mm-hmm. top of it. Right. 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 So it's like <laughs> sometimes too many people are a little bit too quick to say like, Oh, the default world sucks where it's like, well, really it's like the default 51 world, weeks of work. Yeah. Takes, like, yeah. Has right. so much excess energy and value that's being created in this other world that it allows for us to experiment right. in, in new modes of interaction beyond mm-hmm. the default world. And, you know, that was very clearly put to me. I was sitting in like a, a kind of like a group talk and there was a Q&A at the end in, at, at my camp in Burning Man. And um, somebody was like, what would happen, like just hypothetically, if this entire community of Burning Man was, was cut off from the real world, right? From the default hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And like, this wasn't just a week long thing. It's like, now we're here for a year. Right. And you only have what you have. Like how long can that community sustain its values it's intellectual and it's it's emotional and it's psychological Mm -hmm. and spiritual state and values before you start descending into um much more rivalrous behavior right Mm -hmm. um how long before you have roving bands of people taking other people's water and things of that nature and it's like 
I think it was just an interesting question that was put to the group where it's like how much of what we're talking about can exist because we have created surplus, you know? Right. And that so much of, so much of Burning Man is based on the idea of everyone has, well, not everyone, but most people have too much of everything yeah. uh, uh, coming there. So, so, so there's no scarcities. So it's, yeah. uh, um, there's definitely like a revelry in that scarcity. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a really good question, and um, it, it 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 might be like one of those uh, snake biting its own. Yeah, uh, the Ouroboros pattern. Yeah, yeah, where there is, I think, a um, a spirit of gifting and a gift economy mm-hmm. and of leave no trace that does actually permeate through yep. San Francisco and the Bay Area. Yeah, and the uh, of art of um, ideation. And that that spirit, at least within the community, that you know that like, I don't know if, of huge rifts between Burning Man tribes out in 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 this <laughs> very competitive world here. Yeah. Um, th- that spirit of generosity still seems to yeah. um, up, uh, exist even yeah. uh, throughout the year. That was the other side of it, where I was like, I was curious about you know what are the uh, the pathways? Because as you were talking about before. There, there's like perhaps an, an implicit diffusion of that culture into the San Francisco area of, of these values of Burning Man um, that kind of sneaks its way into, or maybe it sneaks isn't the right word, but kind of works its way into the cracks of our institutions and our companies and our culture. Um, but I'm also curious, I was also curious about like, well, there's all of this potential energy being built up there. Like, it seems like there should, might be like, good for for more formal off ramps into society right 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 kind of sustain that 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 culture of emergent community between all the different camps outside of the specific context because i know all the camps like within camps outside of the burning man like one week a year those camps stay in contact stay in contact and uh, but not necessarily there's there's i would think there's probably an exponential fall off of like inter-camp communication right right And, and and i think that um, a lot of this discussion, and, and, and I've kind of been in, in, in the discussions, right, where it's like we view we view it as an event or as a festival, and we're like, hmm, what are, what are the implications of this? And I think that if we viewed it as a, you're going to church. So mm-hmm. uh, if I told you, hey, you, you, um, we're going to church together, and in this church we're brothers, and and then we would sit like, of course you can't be in church we're not monks. We're not going to be in church 24-7. Yeah. It's um, not the monastic lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is, you know, and, and that's a question, what would happen if there's a, a few monks? But beyond <laughs> that, like, uh, you go to pilgrimage and yeah. in this pil- and what happens when you come back from the pilgrimage? And I think that um, we're seeing elements of this um, view in uh, blockchain and crypto and all, right, of this kind of like, more egalitarian, more uh, mm. trust-based, and maybe that's one way in which uh, it's kind of seeped out into the default world. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely seeping out into the world. Uh, it's fascinating all the forms that it's taking, some of which I find uh, extremely valuable and positive, and others that I'm kind of curious about in terms of like, yeah. can there be forms of that that are also, um, you know, when they come out into the world, they manifest in ways that might be uh, like less than might, might cause harm. Um, <laughs> but, and I think maybe, maybe that's a good pivot for us to go into your new book sure. in terms of this question, you know, not on the harm side, but on just the, the yeah, right? like, just t- t- tell el- us about el- how you're harming the no, world. No, 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 no. <laughs> elements of, elements of this culture 
moving out into the broader culture, um, radical inclusion mm -hmm. is to some extent one of those components. And, and it is one of those things that's moving through or becoming more, you know, the word inclusion itself is just becoming, you know, used much more widely in many either corporate or social contexts, political contexts as well. And um, I would be interested to hear, you know, what, you know, what, what, what is the thrust that you're putting forward with your book and what is your perspective on this idea of, of radical inclusion? Like what does radical mm -hmm. and inclusion mean like mm -hmm. in your mind and like when you put them together, where does that take us? What does that, what does that imply? Um, so several years ago, I, I, I was contacted by uh, this guy in the U.S. Army, and uh, as background, uh, I went to UC Berkeley. I was a peace studies major. I teach at Berkeley. You can guess my worldview. <laughs> um, and I had never had an, any contact with anyone in the military, yeah. really. Um, and it was this guy. He was a four-star general. Uh, my first question was, is there a five-star general? Apparently, there aren't. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> I, said, I didn't know what to call him, so I called him Marty. And at the time, he was in charge of leadership and training in, in the Army and then eventually became uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so the head of the military. And um, the military has been looking at how do you take on networks like Al-Qaeda and ISIS that are distributed. And um, he brought me in and, and we had a conversation about, hey, how do you actually use the, use the Starfish principles in action? Yeah. And... Um, over the last several years, we've created different networks um, within um, U.S. Army and U.S. military um, to reach out to um, uh, communities that they never would have engaged in uh, uh, for two weeks. Uh, people from the Army come to Berkeley. Uh, there's a bunch of different networks uh, and circles uh, focused on very different topics. Yeah. Are they in uniform? Um, they don't come in uniform. Okay. Uh, I've had them come in uniform. Um, it's a little bit of a and, and people don't know. And, and yeah. you can kind of tell, like, the, the haircuts kind of give it away. Um, the buzz cut isn't the most popular haircut. On the yeah, right, exactly. Uh, across from People's Park. Uh, yeah. But wonderful things have, have emerged from it. So um, the Berkeley City Council uh, uh, had a unanimous um, uh, proclamation when they heard about this, and they declared uh, uh, June, uh, a day in June, uh, as bridging the military-civilian divide day. Hmm. And you're like, the Berkeley City Council did that, and yeah, and you're like, yeah. huh? What happens when we? And this sounds so um, kind of basic, but what happens when we allow people to actually talk to each other who are seemingly from very different worlds? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and lo and behold. Uh, we have far more that unites us than divides us. Yeah. And what if we focus on um, on shared beliefs and shared values? Um, I had this uh, a few years ago. I was in Kansas in, um, in this hunting lodge. Uh, now I'm a vegan. <laughs> uh, and this guy was talking to me about bow hunting and we're surrounded by all these animal heads. <laughs> and he's like, you know, you Berkeley folks aren't aren't that bad. Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, well, thank you. Um, <laughs> and the conversation that, especially in these days, um, the conversation uh, in this country is so, so divided um, that we need inclusion, not just as a nice to have, 
but as a strategic imperative. And the reason we titled the book Radical Inclusion is that it's about allowing all sorts of participation all the time and, and as, as an inclusion as a default. Yeah. Um, the conversation around inclusion a lot of times, unfortunately, seems more like detention. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, we'll, we'll sit you down. We'll tell you what, you know, yeah, like why you're, you're going, be, you're going to HR for your diversity. Yeah, and right. You're and re- retraining, right. It's, and it's what if we think like about this as this is actually really necessary for um, uh, strategic success and it's necessary for two components. First, we need inclusion in order to have better information um, on the edges of the network. So. Um, can I convince you right now that there is a fire going on in Oakland across the bay? Uh, if I knew your social media, I could probably show you, show you a bunch of pictures uh, to show you that, that like, Oakland's on fire. And then if, if, if it go to another person, and I know their social media uh, patterns, I can show them a bunch of uh, pictures that Oakland is fine. Mm-hmm. And I can actually have these... Um, Reality tunnels. Right. Yeah. Um, so what do you do if you need to find out whether there's an actual fire? Well, you call someone in Oakland that you trust, mm-hmm. right? And um, eventually, probably, you can use uh, some very thin blockchain to certify that that person is who, it, who you think that they're talking to. And they're like, yes, Oakland's on, I'm, I'm right here. Oakland seems to be on fire. Oakland is fine. And you think about that from both a national perspective and also from a small business you need to verify the information that's happening. As, as we're getting so much uh, noise, yeah. you need to have people around you who are going to be able to um, verify information. And also people around us, it's kind of interesting, it's, it's kind of how our brain works um, with surprise neurons. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, our brain really isn't listening constantly to all of the information uh, around it. it, 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 it's, it, it neurons are, um, are monitoring stuff, and then when something is um, kind of surprising to that neuron, then it'll only pa- yeah, punish it's like sufficient novelty. Right, and exactly. That, that's always interacting with habituation in this kind of dynamic tension between is this something new and worth paying attention to, or is it happening so frequently that, okay, now it's just a background feature. Exactly. Yeah. And how do we think about that then as, as, as a leader mm-hmm. to have – diverse enough neurons around you yeah that you're actually being able to get uh the right information at the the right time yeah um and you need that exponentially more the more noise that you have in the environment the reason our brains have that right is because we can't be paying attention to everything around us and not lose concentration yeah Yeah. because that's the interesting thing is like the default is exclusivity in that right. way and not, not exclusively exclusivity as in like oh this is an exclusive club or something but exclusivity as in you can't necessarily pay attention to everything like you're saying and therefore by default to understand anything you have to pay attention to a very small subset of what's out right. there. right and so in a way we're kind of pushing out actually yeah. uh the filtration yeah uh so our consciousness isn't necessarily aware of it but our um we're, we're still tuned in. Yeah, the subconscious, the process that process. gives rise to conscious awareness is, exactly. is itself aware. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so you need in, in, inclusivity really in order to get good information. And then you need inclusivity in order to then disseminate the information that people feel that they are um, a part of something. Yeah. Um, whether it's... Um, uh, 
and having the feeling that they're they've participated. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can ask whether companies or whether countries operate within a <laughs> model of inclusivity or not, mm-hmm. and we can look at how effective. Yeah, uh, their efforts are. And if we just look at it from an if, rather than from a normative, but from a strategic perspective, yeah, then I think that like a functional perspective, a functional perspective, yeah. like you need inclusivity in order to be effective. And mm-hmm. if, and is is exclusivity making you less effective? And we can just ask that simple question. Yeah, I think from the from this perspective of like the functional, if, if we take this functional line of analysis with respect to inclusivity, um, what I what I think I'm hearing you say is, is that different potential members of the network act as different types of yep. sense organs, yep. really, right? It's like, um, you know, in theory, if you if you had the choice of having either just your eyes or your eyes and your ears and your nose and your skin, you want different sense right. organs so that you can kind of triangulate what's actually out there in reality. Yes, yes. And, um, but then that also, that also begs the question of, um, along which dimensions are we interested in inclusivity and how are we, um, like, how do we have the conversation about um, all the dimensions of inclusivity? Because, like, one thing that was just recently interesting along these lines is, I don't know if you saw the news with respect to Facebook and the senior engineer at Facebook who wrote this um, kind of dissenting opinion within Facebook about um, basically a monoculture, political monoculture, Mm -hmm. and saying that, you know, they wanted to create a space for... uh, conservative perspectives to be able to exist and and add to a conversation, not necessarily perspectives that are, you know, trying to attack people or, mm-hmm. or hurt people or anything, but mm-hmm. just, you know, I see the world differently than you and I want to be able to speak about it in in this space and and have that perspective integrated into the overall actions of our organization. Mm-hmm. And they were making the case that, you know, given the scrutiny uh, that Facebook is faced with with respect to congressional investigations and being very much in the public eye with respect to you know the issues with Russia, um, it's probably a good thing to have multiple perspectives represented inside the company as well as outside the company. Right. But as one might imagine, this person and the members of the group are being kind of intact attacked by the immune system within Facebook. Um, not everyone within Facebook, but right. some people now say, oh, like you are making me feel excluded or unsafe by your desire to be included. Right. right. And so so I'm curious, you know, in this radical inclusion framework, how do we how do we think about situations like this? Not to put you on the hot seat. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, so, so I'd have two answers. The, the first is a way to think about inclusion is a way of, uh, it's, a, it's about a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And I think we kind of mis- misuse a lot of, like, when people are like, I need to be included, and people are like, it becomes very combative, and you're like, ah, nah, nah, like and it's, 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 are you excluded, included? Like, is a very kind of um, uh, heavy kind of conversation. Yeah. If someone comes in and says, I want to feel a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, how can I feel more of a sense of belonging? Well, you can do A, B, C, and D, and or I can say like, "Hey, uh, Matt, how can I, how can I uh, make you feel like you belong here because mm-hmm. you do?" And well, it's like, well, what you do really matters. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can give you uh, joint memories and uh, joint efforts. Um, th- there's actually specific things that you you can do, um, and I think then 
the conversation also becomes we we so focus on the macro yeah um the abstractions the abstractions yeah. that it's sometimes really good to just go to the very very micro and think yeah. about how do we run a hour-long meeting mm-hmm. and how do we make sure that in this hour-long meeting different people have a voice and that it's oftentimes it's, it's about not transmitting it's about uh listening to people right amplifying voices that are um interesting or that are uh, useful um and if we use that model inside then probably a lot of people aren't going to be like hey i don't feel included you're like yeah okay great <laughs> like mm-hmm. come talk to us <laughs> come <laughs> come participate um l- l- let's not make it kind of a big like when we talk about it, like are people included in this company or not like yeah i don't know like are you included in this hour-long meeting? Yeah, I can figure I can figure yeah. that out, uh, and that em- emerges from that up rather than. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems to be that seems to be very much the case uh, in terms of the types of signals that we're amplifying on, you know, for example, social media. Like, right. oftentimes we're amplifying these signals that are the least likely to mesh well with our evolved interpersonal realities like you know you and i sitting here in a room it's like i can see you i can see your facial you know movements i can see i can hear your voice like i i know like i I can get a sense for whether you're comfortable or not um we can kind of build a reciprocity here together um i know your intonation like all of these things i have so many data points to to kind of understand where you're at and i can adjust to that because i not you know i can do it consciously but i also have billions of years of evolutionary biology behind me Mm helping me to to stabilize with you right because you know while you know while there are reasons for conflict there are many more reasons for stability evolutionarily like within within our tribe so we're, right? we're, we're, we're not cats so you put us in the same room we're going to try to yeah get like, along we're, yeah we're like these you social are very social creatures right we're right kind of like swim in a sea of socialization and right and so much of what we've built as humanity is is built or predicated upon this ability for for humans to to find cooperative paths, right? So Even when in competition, I, I, yeah, I've been fascinated with this. Um, I, I think you crystallized the issue so that um, one fifteen-minute conversation is not the same as fifteen one-minute conversations, mm-hmm. or as thirty half-second uh, half-minute conversations. Yeah. And that we try to pretend that they do, that that they are the same. Yeah. But that so much is so much of the signal mm-hmm. is lost. Yeah. Especially when you, like, you remove the human and you replace it with just text on a screen. Right. Exactly. Well, right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm really I'm I'm really curious and I'm excited to see what technologies like you know maybe VR but also AR can do for these types of um, these types of interactions. Like obviously more in-person real interaction is is ideal and we want to promote that as much as possible but absent that capacity where it's like you know that's much harder for me to do with someone in europe who's on twitter right i can't just be like hey come fly over here to california and we'll, we'll grab a coffee right right but other modes of technology might be able to bring more humanizing aspects of the conversation mm. into the perceptual reality of that interaction have you ever interacted with anyone in vr like um, VR to VR? Um, I have, but it was uh, maybe a couple of years ago, so huh. it's probably come, come a ways. How was then. it? Um, janky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, the, the cool thing is that you can, you can, you can 
you can focus attention on certain aspects of like, so if, if you're a VR avatar, mm -hmm. um, in theory, you could basically also have like a heart rate monitor on you and like, you know, skin conductance and like things like that. And it's like, as we're having conversation, I could see your stress levels, right? Like you could turn different colors or something like you, you could like literally like, <laughs> amp yeah, like you, you could actually like amplify and create a, um, a communication feedback loop there mm -hmm. between, between people or even simple things like doesn't even have to necessarily be VR, but you know, just think about a social media world in which, um, you know, e even something where it was along the lines of like, uh, you had some sort of little like Twitter dynamic avatar that as you interacted with people, it would evolve. And like, if you were trolling, you know, and people kind of like marked you as troll, like you'd actually evolve. Like if people observed your conversations and said, Oh, that person's actually, that person's actually helping to divide the gap. Like you might actually have some sort of like archetype of like a, a negotiator or something, you know, you know, like those things could emerge and, and people could have personas and then, and I'm not saying this would solve the problem, but you'd have perhaps one more data point. Like when you look at the tweet, mm -hmm. you'd also look at like another data point or, yeah. or at least something else that gives you a little bit of context to not just who that person is in the moment um, as, as perceived by you, but what does the community feel about this person over time? And like, and humans use that information. It's, it's, a, there's a lot of human behavior. That's like the group watching how the group is treating people. Right. Yeah. Which is interesting. Kind of um, the Facebook question that you raised, um, so I, I think that an effective way of having these discussions is uh, asking people, uh, when have you felt like you're the only? And that question very quickly goes beyond gender and- uh, You said, when, when have you felt like you are the only? The only. The only, the only in the room. The, the only the, something. The, the only something. Yeah. Uh, the only engineer, the only- yeah. Um, yeah. Um, what have you, mm -hmm. um, and that, and, and I'm not going to make a bunch of assumptions, but maybe if you have that kind of conversation and, um, even, uh, the guy who wanted to have more conservative voices heard and say, well, well I'm maybe feeling like the only person from a more conservative background. And, sure. Um, and then maybe there's a conversation about, um, what they want, what, what they actually want to, uh, have happen. And, and that maybe that it, who knows, maybe, mm -hmm. um, Maybe they don't just want their voices heard, which is a very basic human emotion, but maybe they also want the conversation to actually be rich. Maybe, maybe, maybe underneath all of that, maybe they really care about about yeah. the company and they want to make sure that it comes to the right conclusion. And all of a sudden, when I talk about what I care about and what you care about, yeah. then that's going to be a lot more connective. And all of a yeah. sudden, I can do something with that. Yeah. Um, and then the question becomes. Again, how much of that conversation is in person? How much of it is in technology? What happens when it's heightened technology? And yeah. and who knows? I mean, we'll, we'll still find out, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm not thinking about myself as an avatar and what avatar I would look like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just maybe tying those two threads together along with something that you mentioned earlier, it's like, how do we find ways um, of, of focusing on shared space? Right? How do we how do we find ways of, of refocusing or, or re- um, framing along the dimensions of, of shared values or shared backgrounds or mm -hmm. shared uh, understanding of one another's humanity, right? Right. Um, it, it so many cases, uh, so many so many times, at least especially over the past couple of years, since you know since Trump has kind of thrown a hand grenade in this whole situation, um, 
the 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 claims to you know there's basically the, it seems so much more frequent that I see people um, isolating problems around very specific groups mm-hmm. that um, that then also make the claim like well you can't understand me right right and right. it's like and you can't understand me because you're not me and it's like I have a very hard time with that line of reason because. You, you can also take it all the way down to the level of the individual. Like if I were arguing with my girlfriend or we were having a difficult conversation about something mm-hmm. and, and, and I was like, well, you just can't understand me because you're not me. Like that's mm-hmm. an end that this is a non-starter. Like we can't make progress past then. It's like, right. you know, yeah, no one else is me either. And therefore apparently no one in the world can understand me. And then I'm just going to go be upset about, whatever I'm upset about and, and and not be able to figure out like how it might relate to other aspects of human beings right. and, and their experience. But gladly we have language and gladly we have empathy and, well, so, and your neurons and yeah, you can actually yeah, yeah. like, well, yeah, so, actually, so how do we tap into that? Right? Yeah, right? So how do we say like, actually like, I'm, I'm upset because of this pattern of behavior right. and, and what pattern of behavior that you and I share could act as a bridge for us to understand, you know, the problem and work together to solve the problem. Right. So I have this, um, this is a hypothesis. I, 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 I haven't been able to get the, the really good numbers on this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think it's the American Psychological Association before um, every major election. Mm-hmm. They look at stress levels. Hmm. Like as measured by cortisol? Um, I don't think they're, I, I, I think it's self-reporting, Just, but self-reporting okay. about... Um, Stress is one of the only things that uh, we um, are very accurate about re- uh, reporting. <laughs> so, it, so if I ask you how stressed you are from oh, one to the, five, oh, the irony! Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, we're very honest with ourselves about it, and we're, we're, we're it's it's okay in our society to be like, I'm feeling really stressed. And, yeah, um, yeah. So if I was uh, looking at your uh, stress hormones and and asking you, yeah. like, there's a pretty there's actually good, correlation. Th- there's a very high correlation. Okay, um, and. Uh, in the last election, um, my understanding is that the stress level amongst uh, Republicans was something like two out of five, not very stressed. Hmm. And stress levels amongst uh, Democrats, Democrats was like four out of five or something, something really, really. Wow. Um, and then you think about this and uh, the more. Which doesn't match the, the normative narrative around right. that election um, leading up to well, it. Well, the Democrats were stressed about what would, what would happen if uh, the Republicans won. Yeah, uh, just the hypothetical of Trump. But I mean, so it's like you'd expect, like there's the hypothetical specter of Trump right. leading up to the election, right. but there was also like every news source ever saying that it was a foregone conclusion that Hillary was going to win. And you can also say that stress is probably a, big, a better predictor <laughs> yeah. of the election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interestingly, right? So like, there's like the the what you might point at is like the unconscious Democratic, the unconscious Democratic, kind of, right? Kind of, and kind of new in a way that they weren't on as stable ground right. as, as they were claiming. Or and, thinking. and yeah, yeah. And, and and that stress is is isn't a very connective emotion. So if I told you hmm. I'm feeling really stressed right now, yeah, like it's very isolating, very isolating. It's very isolating. Yeah. And so if you have a bunch of people in this country uh, who are feeling very stressed about um, a whole host of very important issues, climate change, immigration, and feeling very, very stressed about it. And there's another person in the country for that for some reason isn't feeling stressed about it. That stress is not a very good, um, if, if you're stressed out, then people from the outside will say like, 
you're stressed out and I'm not going to necessarily want to have a conversation with you about why you're stressed out. Yeah. Like, um, and I've been wondering about how much of uh, the isolation has been or the separation has been levels of stress. Hmm. Um, most people I know in, uh, in this area are highly stressed about what's going on in the world, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but how do we effectively communicate that? Mm-hmm. Because uh, <laughs> there's also something about like when you're when you're stressed, you you kind of turn to the in group, right? Yeah. As well, right? yeah. Like when you're stressed, you literally like circle the wagons, yeah. Um, as, as this response to uh, a taxation on your perceived survivability of, of whatever situation you're in, right? Like it, it, I guess, it, and it's amplified now because this this level of perceived existential threat um, as a result of of something like Trump being elected, right, is is greatly amplified by all the other signals that are pushing this into our into our world, right? Right, and I, and I think that's kind of something that we have to deal with as a country. So if there was a fire in this room, yeah, uh, I don't know why I keep on using fire examples, right? No um, fire in the room. No fire in the room, right? <laughs> um, but if there were. And let's see that you see it, and you're like, there's a fire, get out, right? Yeah. And I'd be seeing there like, nope, there isn't a fire. And you're like, <laughs> but there's a fire right there. Yeah. And then that yeah. would actually elevate your, yeah. it would be very hard for you if, if if, if, if we're both looking at the same thing and I'm like, I don't, I don't see, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, think it's yeah. a big deal. Um, how do you... Uh, it's, like the, it's like the idea behind uh, like gaslighting in a way, yeah, right? Where it's, right. Like, where it's like, I'm, I'm acting in a particular way that makes you question your own frame of reference and sanity. Right. And, and I guess, how do you respond to that? And you could respond to that by, by either questioning your own reality or, or like giving in to what that person is saying, or you could push that other person away and say like, you know, you're, you're trying, you're, you're disturbing my perception of reality. And I don't, I don't want that stress anymore. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, which so again, yet another polarizing factor, right? <laughs> yet another polarizing factor. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, which I, again, I, I think, um, uh, in, in the book we talk about, uh, climate change and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people who are, what is it, 47% of the country doesn't believe in climate change? Yeah, something like that. Um, Fairly high levels, yeah. And they're looking around um, at um, what they think are very valid uh, studies, saying like, no, this isn't a big deal, not a... (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And that these people aren't insane. Yeah. Um, They're just looking at... Uh, inaccurate information. Yeah, or, or they're viewing the world through a different value frame in a way, right? I mean, like, to some extent, like, I've heard people put forth the argument that perhaps the best way of solving climate change is 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 pushing forward um, to a point where we're forced to solve it technologically. Like, right. we're actually forced the issue. Um, I'm I'm a little bit, like, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat of a cynic in this respect right. <laughs> where I, I feel as if the pattern of human behavior tends to be we wait until the last minute and then scramble to do things right. when things are almost unbearably, unbearably painful. We're like kids doing like the homework, like when it's like, yeah, it's too yeah, late and now yeah, you're like, ah. Yeah. Oh, we're constantly trying to, to solve these collective action problems to, to extend our ability to act further into the future. Right. But, you know, this is really the first time that, that the child of humanity <laughs> has been dealt the hand of existential risk and, and, and or, you know, I don't think the risk of climate change is existential in and of itself. I think it can trigger 
human action that will make it existential for our species, right? right. The earth will be fine, like whether we're here or not right. over, over a course of like a billion years, yeah, right? Yeah, the question fine, yeah. is like, are we going, are we going to, be to there? Yeah. make things so unstable and volatile for ourselves that we then bring out the worst angels of our nature that, you know, start pressing buttons and detonating nuclear weapons, right? right. Like, or, right. or triggering mass migrations or things of that nature, right? right. So it's like, um, it's always this trade-off game of, of, of where are we and how can we solve these problems collectively? Um, yet the, and this maybe ties all the way back into the starfish for spider stuff. It's like the platform or the technology of, of states and the Westphalian state, it's not something that, that that's always existed. Like that's, we have to look at that as a technology and that technology might not be very well suited to solving these types of um, global collective action problems. Exactly. Right? Even if they say that they're willing to do so, um, the ability to actually act that out. Like if China comes to the table, for example, and says, oh yeah, we're going to reduce emissions by X, Y, or Z, um, and that actually threatens their their economic integrity, what's the likelihood that they're going to act um, in accordance with a, a Kyoto Protocol versus uh, act in their own economic interests, right? Which you're already seeing uh, to some degree uh, from a starfish spider perspective that states are coming in. Yeah. And saying like, well, that's fine with the, what the federal government is, but California is, you know, yeah. um, and, and, and doing potentially, I mean, I think this is a very serious problem, um, but they're at least going in the right direction mm-hmm. um, when the federal government is uh, unwilling or unable to <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. take action. Yeah. And that, and that goes to the that goes to the, or speaks to the power of, or at least brings into question the power of, of bottom-up organization again, right? Where it's right. like, where it's like uh, you can make this argument that, that we are capable of creating a, um, or how capable are we of creating a sufficiently powerful bottom-up um, coordinated force that could in theory act at the scale of global climate? Like, I think that's a really interesting challenge. And I right. think it might actually be the only way to break the game theoretic stalemate that we are stuck within at the at the nation state level. Like you need to have some sort of you need to have some sort of simultaneous coordination to kind of unlock or to break through that um, like to break through the stalemate at which we find ourselves. Right. Um, and it's not clear that that's going to happen within the traditional political frameworks. It hasn't yet. It hasn't. It certainly hasn't yet, and right. it, it, it's it's unclear to me that it's actually possible, right? Like game theoretically, right? Um, in the mindset of zero sum, um, I win, you lose, or my nation has to trade off its economic productivity um, for the collective benefit of uh, humanity fifty years down the road, right? It's like those are the exact type of game theoretic or or economic calculations that we seem to perform poorly at whether we're talking about individuals making their own personal economic calculations or states making economic calculations. Right. So so how do how do we actually coordinate? So that that our interactions as humans becomes much more potentially distributed. Right. Yeah. And and, uh, the agency goes away from the top down government and to more. What can we do as as humanity, regardless of our geography, to tackle this issue? Because I did see I did see a recent study that was done. there's a bipartisan consensus at the individual level about uh, you know wanting a clean environment, right. Right? wanting a clean like wanting clean air, wanting clean water, like the things that humans can materially 
or the things to which human beings as individuals can materially relate. Like I can imagine drinking a brown cup of water and, and, and that, I don't that, do that, that poisons right. me. And I don't want, I viscerally don't want to do it. I can imagine, I know what it feels like. I spent a good amount of time in China in 2017. I know what it feels like to drink or to, to breathe air that is saturated with PM 2.5 like particles at very high levels. And it feels like crap. It doesn't like you literally like get a sore throat and like, I don't want that. Right. Mm -hmm. You don't want, like you can imagine you know, even just thinking about, Oh, what was the air like in the industrial revolution in England? And like, it was so bad that actual species of white moths had to evolve and adapt their wing color to be black because there was so much soot on the trees that all the white moths were getting picked <laughs> off by like birds and owls, right? Like that's how bad it wow. was. Like, that's like bad. It's like everybody can, everybody can imagine that they don't want to live in that. Right. Right. But then you, but then once you start abstracting to these domains of mm -hmm. like, well, these complex models of statistical projections of phenomenon like climate are saying that with some probability and it's like people are asleep already. Right. And, and and I think it becomes it comes back to the question of belonging, right? And and participation. Mm -hmm. That if if I asked you the question that you're included in, right? Like, do you want your water to be dirty or not? Do you want your air to be clean or not? Do, mm -hmm. Then yeah, I'm, I'm a part of this, so therefore I. Uh, but if you're talking about CO2 levels, <laughs> yeah, then then it becomes like I, I don't. For yeah. some people, it comes like I'm not a part of this. I don't. Uh, yeah. If it's like if it's like CO two CO two levels fifty years in the future versus your tax bill today. Right. It's like it's hard to it's hard to make real or make salient that future cost in a way that is in a way that is um, capable of of coordinating action in the present. So so, so I think it's something that, that's fundamentally changed, um, and I think it's really only in, in the last. 10 or 20 years is the ability of one individual to communicate so much more uh, yeah. to, to have such a bigger voice uh, sitting here right in, in, on your kind of awesome equipment like this would not have been possible 20 years ago yeah. right without without a huge capital like you, you, yeah like this this would have been a tv show that, that yeah um, you need capital expenditure you need a whole like you need a whole spider organization behind you, you pushing you, it you out you need a camera person you need yeah. uh you, 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 um and we're just starting, I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg mm -hmm. of, huh, people now have a voice. Everyone has more of a voice. And still, like, um, this is probably beyond uh, a lot of people's means, but it's, it's, it's going to be, every, all the equipment that's around us is probably in, what, 10 or 20 years is going to be a little box. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's like it's art. Like we could do some version of this. On a phone. Just on a phone. Right. right? And it's like, and it's like, okay, well, the production quality might be lower, but the content is still there. Right, right. Um, and that kind of maybe speaks to something we were talking about a little bit earlier, where there is this, like, uh, before we got, you know, you know, before we were recording, we were talking about this idea of when you remove the gatekeepers, when you remove right. the disintermediation, and, and you actually have this immense upswell of content mm -hmm. from the bottom up, mm -hmm. how do we, how do we, coordinate or, or how do we find a way an emergent manner of of still curating quality or, or surfacing quality or, or discovering right. quality so that we're not just overwhelmed by noise and we can actually coordinate the signal um, responsibly right from the bottom up which seems yes. to be something that we are we're currently bad at like if you, if you look at like fake news if we look at Twitter we look at social media it's like we don't have very good bottom-up methods of self-regulating and so therefore like Twitter and Facebook and, and Google are stepping in 
and acting as these centralized arbiters of, of moral worth or truth so, to some extent. Right. And, and, and what happens? So right now, like if I showed you um, an inaccurate news site, mm-hmm. you could probably discern uh, whether it seems real or not. Like, yeah. Um, and you can discern, frankly, by um, the language and whether there are st- <laughs> right? Like, mm-hmm. it, um, like spelling is actually a decent proxy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no. What happens when um, aided by uh, machine learning and I mean, some of the content, some of the content that we read right now is, is machine uh, generated. Mm-hmm. What happens when the content all looks to, to you like something from the New England Journal of Medicine? It all looks really, really robust. Yeah. And as machine learning gets more and more and more intelligent relative to us, it's going to be much more difficult. So um, my dog has a very hard time distinguishing between that a leash is something uh, artificial. Mm-hmm. Like everything is part of the natural world, right? Yeah. Um, what happens when all the information around us seems to be um, very uh, accurate and, and or, or of high caliber? Yeah. And that you need, we then will need each other even more mm-hmm. to be able to like, no, I'm actually an expert in this. And no, this doesn't look, this doesn't look legit. Yeah, not. precisely, precisely. I mean, it seems like that's that's the direction that we're we're starting to head with movements like liquid democracy, yeah, or these delegatory democracy frameworks, right. where where you actually do get this really nice com- uh, combination or balance between. Um, it's not quite a direct democracy. I mean, it is a form of direct democracy in that everybody gets a vote, but it's these issues-based votes where if I trust you on economics, I can delegate my votes on economic topics to you. And if I trust my friend, mm-hmm. you know, my friend Jill on policies regarding, um, you know, policies regarding immigration, I can delegate my vote to her on those topics. And then, and then she can delegate those votes and you can delegate that vote again if you want to, if you want to kind of like bubble that up even further. So it's kind of this way of the network finding the most trusted experts based on a bottom-up um, flow of, of kind of trust. Yeah, and I think that's where the hope is in all of this. Yeah. Is that there is, with our agency, we, can, we now can do something about this. Yeah. Um, and that we are, we're far more empowered than we were. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there are very creative approaches to, yeah. Yeah, like my favorite part about the last voting cycle that we had, not the presidential <laughs> voting cycle, but like um, we had a like local voting cycle here uh, in California. And I was, I, was, I was very encouraged by seeing a party member, or by, not a party member, by a nonpartisan um, candidate who's actually on this liquid democracy platform. And it was just one, but it, it was one. Right. It was better than zero. Right. And and like there's that zero to one idea where it's like, okay, once there's you know, once you've kind of broken through that barrier, who knows how quickly it might flip and, and how, how quickly we might be able to start injecting these new modes of, of thought, conversation, dialogue, consensus right. into these old structures. Right. I kind of look at it almost like, well, there are different metaphors, but and this one might be a little overly violent, but it, it's kind of you've ever seen the movie Aliens? Yeah. It's kind of like that the alien gets injected into right. <laughs> when, right. that. I kind of look at like liquid democracy is like if you can inject that into our current democracy and then like it will come out and <laughs> <laughs> allow, allow us to be something something 
completely different. It's alien uh, through the alien's eyes, which has a happy ending. Yeah, yeah. Which has a, <laughs> it's, like, it's like actually evolutionary as opposed to um, the, the somewhat tragic human fate. But yeah, because it, it does help us get past the sticking point of uh, how do you ever get those in power to vote for the reduction of their own power? Right. Which is like, you know, it is a pretty difficult sticking point to get around. It's like, how do you vote for people in Congress to effectively, um, you know, chop their own legs out from underneath them and, and delegate that voting capacity to a platform, a decentralized platform? It's like never going to happen right. unless you build it from the bottom up and build it into the candidate's platform from the beginning. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like we need to like. We need a democratic infection. <laughs> we need an infection. We need a, we need a revolution. I mean, it, it, it's clear that we need a revolution, and the question is whether the revolution is going to be within the the current system yeah. or, or yeah, um, yeah. Hopefully, 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 uh, hopefully somewhat bloodless. Like, yeah. I, ideally, ideally, it'd be you know, nonviolent revolution. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I think we're seeing. Um, I, I feel like I'm, we're seeing this around us in 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 small ways. There's a bunch of these. Aliens, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping for the best, and I'm hoping that it's a nonviolent. Uh, but, but but certainly, uh, I think we're seeing such big changes, and and um, I'm I'm still optimistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking to that, there's a. Uh, have you ever heard of the concept of explosive percolation? No. So I just came across an article about this, and it's uh, it's kind of explosive, explosive yeah. percolation. So percolation, like you know, kind of your coffee, like you know, water flowing through coffee grounds and and percolating through, um, explosive, like an explosion. Um, it's it's this new, basically these ideas flowing out of network sciences, where it's studying how things uh, happen. Um, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, then all at once, huh. right? Huh. And it's this notion of really studying how um, localized networks start kind of evolving. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, the localized networks all snap into one macro super connected network, right? Uh, and so it's like, it can seem as if mm-hmm. things aren't mm-hmm. happening. And then mm-hmm. all at once, something can just like snap together and emerge very quickly huh. out of that. And so... You know, I'm hoping what we're seeing is something like that, and it's kind of that seems kind of like what you're saying. I think so. Um, there's enough. Um, I um, um, I, was, I was looking at the the Summer of Love recently, and you're like, you, you hear a lot of the conversations from Summer of Love, and the, they sound eerily familiar to the conversations that are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and Again, without putting a normative value, like <laughs> you, you, you think about all of the second, third order effects of yeah. what what happened then, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's hard to it's hard to draw a straight line there, but right, you know, well, we have a feeling that like something something was certainly started at that point, and, and right. it kind of like um, shifted the culture, and and right. again, we're we're kind of part of that new yeah. cultural paradigm. So yeah. cool. Well. Thank you so much for your time today, Ori. I really had a wonderful conversation. I think we covered quite a bit of ground. Quite a bit, yeah. This was really enjoyable. I would always love to have you on the show again and and talk more, but good luck with the new book, and I'm sure I'll see you around the Starfish community. But thanks thanks for joining us. Thank you. Cool. Take it easy, everybody.